welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Today I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 11, and you'll see why on this special Sunday we're looking at this. And you also, I think you'll understand that I don't really have anything against Mike Hudson by giving him such a long reading passage. Um, I, I love Mike, and it just was his lot uh, to do that reading. It could have been any of us, uh, but um, hopefully that, that set the stage, that lengthy reading of Hebrews chapter 11. And then what I'm going to do in the reading for you is I'm going to fill in the gaps with the specific passages that I want to draw to your attention. So you're going to see me jump around in chapter 11 and then begin chapter 12. There is intentionality with this reading. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And then verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And then verse 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Then continuing in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him humbly in prayer. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that, as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the beautifully authentic characteristics of the Bible, of Scripture, is that we see people as they truly are. 
that is, made in the image of God, yet fallen in sin. And as you're reading through your Bibles, you know this, that we need only go to the third chapter of Genesis to encounter the first sinners. And as you continue through reading the Bible, you know, well, they keep showing up over and over throughout the pages of Scripture. Now, I'm told by some that we are evolving into a better species. <laughs> but in contrast, I'm told by others that we're getting worse by the minute. But you know, when I look to the pages of Scripture, and then I look up and I look around, I see neither of those arguments. What I see is evidence of this consistent truth. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we who are fallen are to be reconciled to our glorious God, we need a Savior. And as Mike read the passage for you today, in this chapter of the faithful, I have to tell you that our Savior is not Abel, nor Enoch, nor Noah. It's not Abraham, or Sarah, or Isaac, or Jacob. It's neither Joseph, nor Moses. It's not even Rahab. It is definitely not Gideon. It is certainly not Samson, and there is no way that it's Jephthah or Barak, and it's not even Samuel or David or it's not any of the prophets. It's not the unnamed of whom the world was not worthy, as beautiful as that expression is, and it's not the apostles of Jesus. There is only one Savior for sinners like you. And like me. And he's not the son of Adam. But was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I had to get the Apostles' Creed in the service somehow, right? Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, is the only Savior of the world. Every other named person in Scripture or unnamed, as we see in the passage today, whether a man or a woman or a child within the pages of Scripture is a sinner and cannot save anyone, including themselves. And yet, and yet, within the Bible, we are given examples. And we're given examples of fellow sinners, like this chapter 11, Fellow sinners who are saved by God's grace through faith. But they are pointing us not to themselves. They're pointing us to a Savior. 
Not for the purpose of exalting the sinner, that would be a major mistake, but to exalt Christ alone. And so the writer of Hebrews uniquely lists a few examples of sinners, yet saints, not to witness their sinless perfection, nor their substitutionary sacrifice, impossible on both accounts, but to what? The writer of Hebrews says that we are to behold their faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me read that again. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so it's not wistful longing, but confident trust in God's perfect provision. I've used the example before, is somebody came up to me once upon a time, and and they said, hey, do you think that the Razorbacks are going to win tomorrow? I mean, like, you don't ever ask a Razorback fan that question, right? You think the Razorbacks are going to win tomorrow? And I'm like, you know, Brandon knows this. I'm, I'm like a, just a breath of hot, humid air on a summer day. <sighs> no, we're going to get killed. And she said, you're a pastor. Where's your faith? <laughs> I'm like, me no thank your faith and my faith mean same thing. Like, no, no that's, that's not what we as Christians mean by faith. And I have no idea if the Razorbacks are going to, they're probably not going to win. But the point is this, is that when we look at the examples within Hebrews chapter 11, let's just say, for example, Abraham. Though Abraham lived long before the birth of Christ, he hoped in God's promise, which would ultimately years and years later, be fulfilled in Christ. Yet the same faith that you and I have today. So integrally connected was faith to God's provision in Christ that Jesus could say this to the Pharisees, which just absolutely infuriated them, I might say. He said this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And was glad. And the Pharisees were incredulous. They could not see what Abraham saw. What did Abraham see? The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Such an assurance and conviction that Jesus could say, Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's how strong that faith is. He saw it, and he didn't just see it, it made him glad. It's no wonder that Paul refers to Abraham as our father in the faith, and Jesus called the Pharisees blind guides, right? They could not see what Abraham saw. But the faith that the Pharisees did not have, and that Abraham had, is not a blind or unsubstantiated faith. It's not, hey, I sure hope that the Razorbacks win tomorrow. Nope. It is a substantiated faith. And the writer of Hebrews, as was read earlier, gives the example in verse 3 of creation. He says that 
it takes faith to believe in creation. Here's specifically what he says. Look with me in verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. The writer of Hebrews explains this and then goes on, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What's he saying there? What he's saying is that though no human being was present at creation to witness it, catalog it, record it, and then convey it, no one was present, and yet our Creator testifies of Himself in creation. What we call general revelation. Paul explains it this way in the very first chapter of his epistle to the Romans. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, creation tells of her Creator to all who will listen. Likewise, faith in Christ, whether before or after His incarnation, comes through the special revelation of God's Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so faith, whether of creation or in Christ, is according to God's revelation. And therefore, when the writer of Hebrews here, when he directs us back to the saints of the Old Testament, he is providing a beautiful picture of how God works in sinners and saving sinners. All who came before Christ's incarnation, they looked forward to Christ. Just as all of us who have come after Christ's incarnation look back to Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews is painting this picture for us. And even though the Old Testament saints did not know the name of Jesus, they could confess with Job. Well before the incarnation of Christ, Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And like us, to their Redeemer, they looked. And the writer of Hebrews said, by virtue of this, they received their commendation. Commendation there means a divine approval from God Himself. This divine approval that comes to them by God's grace through faith. Yet, In reading through the Old Testament, it can seem much more difficult to see a clear and an overt profession of faith like we see in the New Testament. And I know many of you, when you read chapter 11, you think, my my stumbling block is like Samson. I'm like, what? You're reading through it, and you're thinking, well, it's different, isn't it? Well... Think about it this way. When Paul and Silas were miraculously, supernaturally broken out of jail and they are preaching the gospel to the Philippian jailer, they say this. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so the scripture says that they believed and so were saved. But when I'm reading, like for example, Samson, who's one of the examples that the writer of Hebrews gives, I struggle looking. Where's his, his overt, his clear profession? I mean, that he was a privileged, spoiled child, like I see that clearly. Uh, that he was a man of incredible strength. Every child of Sunday school knows that. Uh, the part that we don't talk about in Sunday school is he had a voracious sexual appetite. Well, we see that in Scripture too. My goodness, who is this man? And how can he be used by the writer of Hebrews as an example? But that he delivered judgment upon Israel's enemies through faith in the God who empowered him and delivered him. Well, we see that clearly. That he cried out to God in his final judgment in between the two pillars. Well, that's a fact too. And so, do we see in Samson, for example, a New Testament kind of profession of faith? No. But the writer of Hebrews, to a certain extent, anticipates this. And so he gives us the metaphor of the promised land. And to a certain extent, if I were the writer, I would say, okay, I know you're all struggling with, I gave the example of Samson, and you're all thinking about the example of the Philippian jailer. So let's talk about the promised land. What was the promised land and what was it to the Old Testament believers? And so the writer of Hebrews introduces this as a metaphor, so to speak. And what he says is that God promised Abraham a land. For his offspring. He did that back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. A promised earthly inheritance. God was teaching him by faith to look beyond the real estate to an heavenly estate. In fact, you good students of Scripture, you know this, like none of the patriarchs inherited the land that was promised to Abraham. A promised earthly inheritance. And the writer of Hebrews says, but God was working in that to teach them to look beyond. And so they are listed as examples of faith. And they lived this life under the sun by walking by faith. And yet they never reached the allotted land. In other words, their faith was rooted in a promise that transcends this earthly address. Their faith was rooted in a promise that transcends this earthly address. Now pause here for just a second. Let me get very practical with you. Can you imagine if God Himself had promised your great-grandfather an inheritance... And every year that story was passed down on and on and it never came to fruition within your lifetime. Can you imagine what a life of defeat it would have been if you had placed all your hope in receiving a piece of land? Can you imagine? And yet, when I examine my own heart, and looking at this, I say, how often, how often do I do the very same thing? Perhaps not land, 
but something better to come. Maybe it's a, a new purchase. Maybe it's a new experience. Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a new address. How often do we live with greater hope that God will improve our circumstances than hope in God Himself? How often do we hope that God will give me what I want, what I pray for, and then I grow frustrated when He doesn't? How often are we discouraged because of what we hoped for doesn't ever happen? And we blame God. And this should lead us to stop. It should lead us to stop and ask an examining question. What is my hope built on? What is my hope built on? Is it the way of the world? More wealth, more authority, more recognition. See me? Is it the truth of the world? A better technology, an improving culture, a trustworthy government? Is it, is it in all that life has to offer? More pleasure, more amusement, more appeal? If so, you and I are always going to be disappointed. We're always going to be let down. Because hear me clearly, life everlasting, sinner reconciling, soul satisfying hope is found only in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we put our hope in anything but Him, we will grow more and more discouraged. And so this means that Abraham looked not to his life as the best life now. Though God, we know, blessed him richly. Rather as a picture of faith. He and the other patriarchs, they lived. They didn't live like land-owning residents. The writer of Hebrews says they lived like strangers and exiles on earth. Now, by faith, yes, they looked to a promised land. But the writer of Hebrews said, but it wasn't a sandy lot in the Middle East. It was looking beyond it. Looking onward and upward. Looking to a heavenly land. Looking where God reigns. Not only over the heavenly realm, but reigns over your heart, your mind, and in the new creation, your very body. And so when we look back to the patriarchs, we look back to the Old Testament saints, we see in them, albeit veiled at times, we see in them an assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. And as they looked forward to the fulfillment of God's prophecy or promise, we know that they were looking forward to what would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. Similarly, Scripture so authentically shows us the saints of old and all their faults. 
And so as I say to you as a congregation, don't forget that description is not prescription. Right? Description, just because it describes Samson and Solomon, doesn't mean that Scripture is prescribing their sinful behavior. For example, David's adultery and murder justify neither. But his repentance, his reconciliation, testify to the steadfast love and mercy of God. An example after example, if we took the time to walk through all of the examples and tie in the Scriptures to them in this chapter, example after example, we look at the faithful saints of old and we witness through them not perfect obedience, but the source of their faith. The source of their faith. Because faith is neither inherent, you're not born with faith, it's not inherited, you didn't get it from granddaddy, it's not manufactured, you can't make it, and it's not merited because you're not good enough and neither am I. But faith is a gift. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that it is a gift from God. It's the greatest gift. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now think about this. Think about how beautiful this is. What God requires, God gives. What we need most, God gives. It is indeed extraordinary, such as the grace of God. And as a result, saved sinners don't boast. But we do give thanks. Thanks for the good witness God has given in Scripture. And thanks for the internal witness of the Holy Spirit and the faith that He gives. And so, as we look through chapter 11, one of my other favorite examples is the example of Rahab the prostitute. We don't look to Rahab and say, you know, I'm wondering, John, how a pagan prostitute mustered up enough faith to be listed in Hebrews chapter 11. But that, that, that's silly. We look at her like we look at ourselves, I'm the pagan prostitute, just like Rahab. Knowing that but for the grace of God in His gift of faith, we would have no hope of salvation. But God saved Rahab. And He saves us by His grace through faith. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. But here we must pause and make a distinction between Rahab and us, as the writer of Hebrews does. Though the gift of faith for Rahab is the same as the gift for us, she looked in faith to God's promise, while we look back to its fulfillment in Christ. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. If you have your Bibles open, look in verse 39 with me. 
And all these, meaning the Old Testament saints, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, namely Christ. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, what he's doing here is he's teaching us to consider the privilege we enjoy of looking back to not the partial or the veiled revelation of God, but the full revelation of God in Christ. We know His name. We have four Gospels that tell us of His life. We have the Gospel so clearly taught to us in Scripture. We look to Christ unveiled. And it is in Christ that we, the church militant, join the church triumphant. All of those who have gone before us in praising God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we look back. Here's the tie-in today. We look back to the faithful testimony of God's grace worked out in the lives of the Old Testament saints. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12 the writer of Hebrews uh, sort of teaches us to imagine an assembly around us, like a coliseum, a, a stadium. And we're imagining that they're, they're cheering us on as we run the race. Now, of course, in reality, they're, they're not watching us. They are quite captivated with the essence of worship, doing exactly what God created you, them to do. Aunt Bertha's not watching over you. She's praising God if she is in Christ. But the writer of Hebrews says, imagine, imagine of all of those who have gone before, if they're, if they're watching, and, and we might even imagine those faithful saints after the cross, testifying to the faithfulness of God and the perfect provision of Christ Jesus. Strangers, exiles in this life, who like John Knox could confess, I sought neither preeminence, glory, nor riches. My honor was that Jesus Christ should reign. That's a good testimony. And in your life, over which Christ reigns, every weight, whether fear or discouragement in this life, and every sin is laid aside. In fact, Paul says, it's not just laid aside, it's crucified. I have been crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live by faith, or rather in Christ, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. We run the race of the Christian life, then, as the writer of Hebrews says, we run with endurance. But unlike the athlete who's running and constantly looking at themselves and analyzing their own performance and constantly critiquing their own performance, we look to Christ. We're not performing for God. We're running the race. We're not founders of our faith. He is. We're not perfectors of our faith. He is. Through His righteous life, His sacrificial death, His victorious resurrection, He who saves, saved us. 
And He who saved us sanctifies us. And He sustains us unto the end. And with all the saints before us, we look to Christ alone, who suffered and died for us, not as a patriarch, not as an apostle, not as a martyr, not as one plagued by sin and imperfection, but as the sinless Son of God. For He to whom we look, looked ahead to the joy that was set before Him. The joy of reconciling us to God the Father. To our, for our eternal good and for God's glory. To the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And so we look back to all the saints before and after the cross. Saved sinners, every one of them. Encouraged to see the consistent faithfulness of God's saving and sustaining grace. But, we do not let our eyes stay too long fixed on the recipients of God's saving favor. We're given the example of, Hebrew, of the saints of Hebrews 11. On this Heritage Sunday, we look back to the faithfulness of those who have gone before us, but we do not stay fixated on sinners. But we tilt our eyes upward and look as they did to their Savior and our Savior, who having secured redemption for God's elect, is now seated in the place of heavenly favor at the hand, right hand of the throne of God. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for those who have gone before us, those before and after the cross, those who have sought to live faithfully to you and you have saved by your grace through faith in the promise fulfilled in Christ. We asked, ask that as the writer of Hebrews teaches us, this reign of Christ over us, that we would cast off the weights and sins that burden us. As we are crucified in Christ, may we look to Christ and Christ alone, encouraged by the testimony of our forefathers, yet securely focused on the perfection of Christ. May He be glorified through this church for years and years to come. May He be glorified in our lives this very day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.